Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. fact, Winsome Witness Wisdom Wednesday. There you go. I was a little confused yesterday. I thought yesterday was Wednesday, but in fact, today is Wednesday. So welcome to Wednesday. Um, I'm going to quickly survey here some headlines that um, that have my attention this morning. I will lift them up as cause for, uh, for prayer, invite you to pray the news this morning. The 15th juror has been seated in the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, the I'm just going to offer up prayers in earnest as the trial begins. I mean, you know, the the process of jury selection has been, I think, longer than many anticipated. And so um, attention has turned to many other things in the subsequent days. But uh, certainly attention is going to return to be focused with some white heat on this particular uh, trial. And so we want to be praying that there be peace and that there be justice as the trial um, really will be set forth um, next week. Obviously, our attention is uh, on things in Colorado. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk more um, about that today. Um, but also going on in Colorado, Colorado cake baker Jack Phillips, uh, whose name you will recall from a U.S. Supreme Court case, which was I, I would describe as a partial victory um, in terms of acknowledging that what he does is art and each piece is unique and uh, constitutes speech and he shouldn't be forced to um, speak blessings or things that uh, are not aligned with his um, or conflict with his sincerely held religious beliefs. So you'll remember he was asked to make a cake for a same-sex wedding and he refused and that was what that first case was about. Well, he's back in court because he's been sued again, this time for failing to, uh, for refusing to make a gender transition cake. And so, you know, this is at some point just becomes targeted harassment by those who um, want to force someone to do something that someone does not want to be forced to do. Uh, And so let's be just praying for that entire situation. Uh, The first U.S. city that I'm aware of has paid reparations for racial discrimination or is set to do so. The Evanston, Illinois City Council voted eight to one on Monday to begin distributing about $10 million to qualifying African-American households. In 2019, the council approved a proposal um, to pay black residents of the city reparations for past slavery and discrimination. And so the the funds are going to come from the city's recreational marijuana tax and uh, private donations. This is going to um, foment conversation in other cities across the country uh, as Evanston, uh, in my in my uh, understanding, really does become the first or at least the first with this kind of funding um, to go about uh, repaying residents. So you have to have you have to be able to prove that you uh, not only a resident of Evanston now, but that you lived, uh, uh, that your people 
lived in Evanston between 1919 and 1969 and experienced housing discrimination from the city. So descendants of those particular African-American um, residents who experienced discrimination from the city um, are going to qualify. So that's what's going on there. All right. Uh, we're going to turn our attention to the southern border, and we're also going to turn uh, our attention to uh, the plight of refugees. Those are distinct issues. We're going to talk about immigration and we're going to talk about refugees, both with Matthew Sorens from World Relief. He also represents the Evangelical Immigration Table. That conversation up next. Now, Matthew Sorens, he heads up the Evangelical Immigration Table, uh, also works with World Relief, helping us um, understand the plight of refugees and engage as Christians in that not only conversation, but um, but in welcoming those uh, who come to the United States. So, Matt, let's um, let's lead off this morning at the southern border of the United States. Here we are talking about immigration. Um, Maybe just give us the latest. Yeah, obviously everyone's seen in the news that there's a, an, a really large number of people showing up from primarily from Central America at the U.S.-Mexico border. And while most adults who are by themselves are being turned away, and, and most families as well, from what I understand, children who show up unaccompanied are being allowed in now, which is actually a change in policy. Um, that was that, that our, our laws actually say that that's what ha- should happen. It goes back to a 2008 law that President Bush signed that when an unaccompanied child is apprehended, basically that child should be turned over from Border Patrol to the Department of Health and Human Services, which works through a network of care providers to protect those kids, keep them safe until they can go live with their family and eventually go to court to determine if they get to stay here lawfully or not. That's what's supposed to happen um, for most of last year because of COVID. There was sort of a public health exception, sort of a legally questionable public health exception that went into place that said, we're just going to turn kids back regardless of if they're all by themselves. And that was a policy that at World Relief and we joined IJM and World Vision and uh, various other anti-trafficking and child protection Christian groups in saying we did not think was appropriate because as terrible as COVID is, being sent right back into the arms of a trafficker could be worse, especially for a child. And so we were pleased that that policy has changed. The challenge then, and in some ways a predictable challenge, is the number of children it, last month was not at an unprecedented high, but was nearly at the, the, the high of 2019 for a month. And we expect it continues to grow this, this month. So what's happening is instead of being turned over to child-appropriate care facilities while they can wait eventually for, for their court date, Kids are being backed up in border patrol facilities, which were made to hold single men and are really not good places for kids. And they're, they've been there in some cases for 10 days or more. Let's talk about um, child appropriate housing options and accommodations, because this feels to me like uh, an opportunity for the church in the United States, for Christians in the United States. Um, what how might um this be quickly improved because I, you know, I'm thinking here like, you know, massive foster care across the country. Um, these are kids as um, as hardline or hardcore as 
as you might be out there listening right now, that it's wrong for, uh, you know, for people to be coming to the United States, if that's your perspective. Let's still keep in mind, these are kids. And um, and so, Matt, what what might be a way um, for I don't know. I mean, is it possible for households across America or houses of worship across America to appropriately engage on this? Yeah. So, I mean, most of these kids actually have biological family members in the United States. So while they wait for the court date, that's where they're going to end up. I mean, that's the first first uh, best option if they have family members. And they're usually in these shelter facilities just on an interim basis, usually for about a month while it you know, we, the government working with these nonprofits can verify this is indeed this kid's mother, you know, and she's a safe place for him to live while, she, while they wait for the court date. Um, but there are cases, it's probably about 10 percent or so, and sometimes just on an interim basis, even when there is a family member, where these kids do need foster families. And, of course, for good reasons, those needs to be licensed foster families. You can't just randomly put them with families. So there's a process there, and it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's a lot of work um, to become a foster family. But it's an incredible ministry, and um, it's largely led in the United States by the U.S. Catholic Church, as well as the Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services, um, and working with various partners, Bethany Christian Services and others, who who coordinate that uh, foster family process. But it's, it's, you know, my view is there's a number of reasons things are backed up right now, but it should never be the case that our process is backed up and kids are in an unacceptable condition because there is never enough foster families available. Yeah, there are never enough foster families available um, uh, on on any given day in any yeah. given community. So that might be something if you are if you're listening right now and you are wondering, you know, how might I tangibly engage and help? Um, you know, find out who the foster families are in your congregation and find out how you could maybe support them. Um, and if you're interested, go ahead and start the process of becoming a licensed foster family. Um, and, you know, there there are ways that we can offer the space available in our hearts and homes um, to those who need temporary shelter um, as they uh, as their appropriate family members in the United States are identified. Um, I, I guarantee you there's people listening right now, Matt, who um, who think that kids should be turned away. Um, the the human trafficking question is a huge one. Um, these kids do not get from, let's say, Guatemala to the U.S. southern border all by themselves. There are obviously adults engaged in that process. Um, those people are trafficking in people. Um, and it's uh, it's dangerous. It's, yeah, I mean, I, the, the horror stories are many. Um, and so I, I do think that when we come back from the break, it would be helpful for you to remind us um, of who we are as Christians in terms of our reaction and response to people who desire um, for their children to have a better life and and live in a place that is not like Central America is like right now. So um, a little bit of a window into their life experience would be helpful. I'm talking with Matthew Sorens. He comes to us from World Relief and also the Evangelical Immigration Table, and we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Continuing my conversation with Matthew Sorens from World Relief and the Evangelical Immigration Table. Um, remind us of 
what life is like in Central America. There there are realities that are driving this migration north. Yeah, that's that's right. And unfortunately, you know, I think it's worth keeping in mind that these particular countries that are we're talking about are El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. They're actually, in some ways, three of the most Christian countries in the Western hemispheres as well. Um, almost everyone is either a Catholic or Protestant Christian, and, and about half of of these countries are evangelical, which is very high for Latin America. But it's often brothers and sisters in Christ who we're talking about, and they're in really devastating conditions in, in many cases. And I should say, there's also a ton of beauty in these countries. I lived in Nicaragua for for a season, and it's there's just amazing people, hardworking people. But there's also a lot of governmental corruption in some cases. I mean, just in the news today, I mean, there are debates over whether the president of Honduras, the president himself, could be charged on drug-related charges, and his brother already has been. And that, I mean, all Hondurans know that dynamic. They know that they're not necessarily, you know, that there is a lot of money involved and it, they, as a normal person, there's not much they can do about it. Um, there's, you know, it's different dynamics in El Salvador and Guatemala, but there's always different elements of corruption, of extreme poverty, exacerbated by COVID shutdowns. Because when you are told the economy is shutting down there, you don't get a $1,400 check to provide for your family. So people are really desperate. And then you add to that ongoing gang violence, and this is where it comes, affects kids in particular, because the target for gangs is often, you know, a 14 year old boy who's told you're going to join this gang or we're going to kill you or we're going to rape your sister or some terrible thing will happen. And they're not necessarily bluffing because those things happen. The, the murder rate in Honduras, for example, is about 10 times what it is in the United States, even after some improvement in recent years. So there's there's a very challenging situation. And obviously, if we're ever going to resolve this you know, it would be in the interest of the United States to address some of the root causes of why people are fleeing. But we also can't just close our hearts to, you know, to say that, well, those people just need to deal with it themselves, especially when we're talking about children. And that's why our laws are actually set up to provide some special protections for unaccompanied children from that region, because not that to say they all get to come or they would never be sent back, but our government made the decision, again, back under President Bush, that we shouldn't send someone back without first verifying that we're not sending them back to a situation of danger. Let's um, well, let me remind our listeners of the conversation that I had with Mike Miller from uh, Micah Project Honduras. If you want to remind yourself of that um, uh, ministry located in Honduras and you want to engage with them, I encourage you to do that. MicahProjectHonduras.org. Um, let's pivot our conversation to refugees. This is a different conversation, um, but it is related, and you're an expert in it as well. Um, let's talk about the Rohingya people. Let's remind our listeners about the plight of the Rohingya uh, and why you and I are talking about them today. Yeah, so the Rohingya are a an ethnic and an, usually a religious minority in Burma, which is also known as Myanmar. So people have seen Burma in the news perhaps in the last few months because there's basically been a military coup, which for all my Burmese friends is not terribly surprising because it's just an incredibly harsh, brutal government that has long persecuted both ethnic and religious minorities. And many of the religious minorities are actually Christians. The, the majority of the Burmese refugees who've come to the U.S. have been Christians. But the Rohingya are largely Muslim, uh, and they're being uniquely persecuted right now in Burma. Many have fled, especially to Bangladesh, where they are also not welcome, but they are, they've been tolerated to some extent. But in just in the last few days, there was a horrifying fire in one of the largest refugee camps in the world in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh, and just 
devastating both loss of life and um and like thousands and thousands of people have lost their their very minimal dwelling places that they had um the stories coming out of that fire i mean people couldn't escape because of the barbed wire these are already people living in a camp setting that they're not allowed to leave and it was yeah just really horrifying stories and um that that's part of why you know world relief we've long said not every refugee can come to the united states but for some of the most vulnerable cases it's important that we keep that lamp on at the statue of liberty that the united states is still a place of refuge and safety for people fleeing persecution so these are people who fled persecution get to another country only to find you know maybe not as severe of hardship but still hardship in that second country in many cases all right, and then I'm going to ask you, um, you know, what I know is a, is a hard question to answer, but I think it is probably the one most important for Christians today in the culture. Um, the shooter in Boulder, Colorado, has been identified as a 21-year-old who came to the United States from Syria as a child. I have no doubt, Matt, that we are going to hear all kinds of um, very heated rhetoric um, on on this topic. And so um, how, what, is, what are some appropriate ways, what are some talking points for Christians in the culture um, when there is a news story that does feature an individual, um, you know, who was not born in the United States? Yeah. You know, I, I, to be very honest, when something like that happens, um, because I care so much about refugees, I'm immediately Googling and trying to figure out who is this person? How did they get here? Is this represent some sort of flaw in our processing? And is it going to shut down all refugee resettlement? And, you know, it's it's in some ways instructive that there was a, a horrifying shooting death a week ago in Atlanta, mm-hmm. where the alleged perpetrator was apparently an evangelical Christian. And as a white evangelical man, I don't like to hear that story and then have everyone in the country think that, oh, well, that's what white evangelical Christians do. You know, they they go shoot people. That, of course, would be absurd, right? I mean, there are millions and millions of people like me who would completely bore that. And his church has, of course, denounced what he did, but obviously allegedly did. The same should be the standard when someone who's a Muslim or someone who came in, you know, who was born in another country, allegedly commits a crime. Uh, they should be punished, of course. But we can't judge all people from that country of origin by one person's abhor- abhorrent actions. Um, and in this case, I also think it's important to know we don't know how he came to the United States, except for reportedly as a very small child. So even in that case, it doesn't really suggest a failure in the United States screening and vetting process. I mean, it very much would suggest that if he was radicalized in some way, even that we don't really know. We don't know any sort of motivations at this point. Um, you know, that was something that happened within the United States. And that's something that happens within the United States to U.S. citizens and to foreign-born individuals. But it is, a, you know, it's a situation that um, is heartbreaking for the victims of this horrifying crime. But we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that this is why we need to keep out all people who share, you know, this country of origin or, or this religious tradition. Um, we can be more discerning than that. The same way we would, you know, it's, I think it's an opportunity to apply Jesus's golden rule. I don't want to be judged by the horrifying actions of all white evangelical men um, because a few have done some terrible things um, throughout mm-hmm. history. But it's not fair to make that extrapolation to everyone in that situation. I should also yeah. say that we don't have any particular reason to think he came through the refugee resettlement program. And if he came nearly 20 years ago, the odds that he did so from Syria 
it's not impossible, um, but I, I think it's very unlikely just based on how few Syrian refugees were coming 20 years ago. Well, and he would have been a year old at the time. So in terms of, you know, whether or not he was vetted, right? I mean, I don't think we vet one-year-olds. That's just like not how that process works. We vet their families. Exactly. So, right? Exactly. I mean, I just think there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot to keep in mind here. Um, and I think that um, uh, facts matter. There's a lot we don't know right now. Um, I think that your encouragement that we not jump to conclusions, but also that we not um, take the actions of one person and and say this is true of an entire people group or a, an entire uh, group of people from a particular uh, place of origin or religion. I mean, I just think that all of those are good, really good reminders um, for us today. Yeah. All right, we got to leave it right there. Um, Matthew Sorens, thank you so very much. You guys can find Matt at World Relief. You can also find him at the Evangelical Immigration Table. We'll be right back. All right, what in the world is going on in the world? What is happening in relationship to the Tokyo Olympics? An update on Lebanon, um, further conversation about Myanmar. Um, I'm also going to talk with Ruth Kramer when she joins me um, about her experience as a woman of Asian descent here in the United States of America, particularly among Christians. Um, so that's in light of the rising tide of violence against Asian Americans and people of Asian America or Asian descent here in the U.S. All of that next here on Mornings with Carmen. When it comes to your teen's behavior, how's a mom or dad supposed to discern what's normal and what's abnormal? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. That may seem like a loaded question, but let's take a minute to separate the two. It's normal for teens to fail to do their chores without 10 reminders, to put off homework, to get emotional and to listen to music that's too loud. It's normal for them to question authority, even though it drives you crazy. But abnormal behavior needs to be addressed. It shows up as a sudden and profound personality swing, extreme disrespect for people and things, eating disorders, or self-harm. If your teen falls into the abnormal category, I'd encourage you to take action. And it all begins by seeking professional help. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now is Ruth Kramer from missionnews.org. Uh, everything we're going to talk about this morning is posted there, as well as a ton of other great stuff. Ruth, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Let's um, let's lead off with the Tokyo Olympics. Um, I was reading that there is, you know, a plan to limit spectators, but I know you've got other things to talk about there as well. Well, limiting spectators is the nice way to put it. They're banning the foreign spectators. <laughs> so if you bought tickets, you're, they will refund the tickets, but don't be planning any trips or any places to stay because that's not going to be a thing. You know, it's 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 kind of a nice to at least have a decision on are, are the games going to move forward or are they not going to move forward? You can't afford another postponement. The athletes can't afford another postponement because they've been – kind of in a holding pattern for over a year and, you know, training at that high level and really having no, um, no place to be able to dump that stuff. Cause if you, you know, when you're thinking about 
that level of competition, they're going to be on site in the uh, athletes' villages, um, maintaining their training levels so they're ready to compete. And they've been doing this since last year. So wow. at least having a decision, you know, it allows them to have a goal to to fix their their eyes on and to fix their training on, so that they will be ready for competition when the Olympic Games kick off uh, in the summer. And so that's that's a good thing. Um, it also comes at a good time where the the cherry blossoms are are blooming, and that's uh, the sakura kind of thing. Uh, that's the name of I guess the cherry blossom, uh, and that kind of is very symbolic for what's been happening there because. Um, for the Japanese, the the cherry blossom season really represents a time of renewal or a time of optimism. Um, it's it's kind of a representation of hope and new life. So this is coming at an opportune time. It's very symbolic to a lot of people just because of what's happening there. Um, at the same time, you know, every time you have an Olympic Games or something, uh, a, an athletic contest on this level, you know what it represents. You know that it means hundreds of thousands of people are going to um, come to the country. And for ministries, you're going to have an opportunity to reach so many more people. Uh, because of the way things have pivoted right now, um, a lot of ministries are are kind of doing the same thing. I Not kind of, but they are doing the same thing. Um, our friends at Asian Access had been gearing up for an Olympic-style um outreach. So their churches were starting to mobilize on a lot of different levels. They were connecting with community to be able to be ready to receive and give hospitality to these hundreds of thousands of visitors who are not going to be a thing now. So they pivoted. Uh, and we're not talking just a couple of months. They could see what was coming. So the pivot has been something that has been um, gradually occurring to the point now where they can say, this is what we're doing and it's ready to go. And they've gone toward more of the virtual um, response. So there's going to be virtual mission trips. You will be allowed to, um, you know, if you live on in on the island, um, continue to go in and out and around these different places. Uh, there are going to be a lot more security protocols. There's going to be obviously a lot of very careful COVID protocol. Um, but if you live in, in the country, then you still have some freedom of movement. And uh, so they're going to be uh, allowing people to um, move around. And that gives Asian Access the opportunity to kind of introduce people virtually who cannot be in Japan to the country to the people, to the needs, and this virtual trip will uh, enable people to engage with what's happening in the Olympics, as well as uh, coming alongside the body of Christ there, who will still be hands and feet to the athletes and the coaches and the, and the staff that have to be there. There's still a lot of extra people on the island uh, in, in the country, and um, there's still a lot of opportunity to in, insert the hope of Jesus Christ in a time that's been very turbulent for Japan. Amen. Um, all right, let's pivot from Japan uh, to Lebanon. We have had a number of conversations uh, about uh, about Lebanon. Um, and so what do we want to highlight in terms of that storyline today? Well, Lebanon's difficulties uh, are surrounded, uh, I guess, the, the root of the difficulties are, is the corruption of the government. Um, mm -hmm. And that led to uh, a lot of other things that you're seeing coming out uh, with regard to the uh, economy, because the, the government has been accused of siphoning off a lot of extra funds so that uh, when you have need of these funds, they're just gone. Um, 
within the last two weeks, the um, energy minister was basically saying, if we don't get a bailout from the government, we're going to have to shut the lights off on Lebanon. And that just means, you know, you think about this a second. Lebanon's a developed country. So what would it mean if the power companies no longer had the money to purchase the fuel to continue to operate? That means no Internet connectivity. That means no running water. That means no electricity, no lights. You know, and that takes Lebanon back uh, to, you know, a, a couple of decades um, in terms of how people are living. And it reminds them a lot of the circumstances that they were living in during the Civil War, which ended in 1990. It was a 15-year Civil War. And they're they're really feeling like they're at the cusp of a lot of situations like that. Now, the bailout came through, so the lights are still on. But we have to understand that this is a country now that is dealing with hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. So if you were remembering anything from, uh, you know, a couple of decades back with the situation in Zimbabwe, where you saw people taking um, wheelbarrows full of money, full of bills to the grocery store for a single loaf of bread. We're talking that kind of hyperinflation. Um, The Lebanese lira has dropped 90 percent since 2019. So for people who are trying to deal in the the country's currency, um, food is unaffordable. A liter of milk is ridiculously expensive, and it now costs. If they if they had a job, it costs half the salary just for a liter of milk, um, because the prices are going up so high. Ironically, the U.S. dollar maintains its value, and so for uh, the for someone who is being paid in U.S. dollars, that same liter of milk is only fifty cents. So see, that's a, per- like, like, yeah. Like- so let me just for people who think in economic terms, um, the uh, the United States dollar equals one. So one hundred United States dollars. This is the this is the way that the uh, the way that this now sets up is one hundred and fifty one thousand six hundred and thirty four lira or Lebanese pounds. Uh, uh, so the. It's crazy. I mean, the the exchange rate is crazy, and so that's why Ruth is trying to highlight here the literally the value of a dollar, um, and and how far a dollar goes right now, um, in terms of ministries on the ground in Lebanon, um, and so we want to be praying for and resourcing them um, as we are able. Uh, Ruth and I are going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, we're going to touch on the situation in Myanmar. And then, yes, I am going to ask her uh, to reflect on her experience as a woman of Asian descent here in the United States of America. Um, We are talking uh, about things that are not only in the headline news, but happening in the hearts uh, with one another. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can find her at missionnews.org. Um, Ruth, let's briefly touch on, uh, get an update on what's happening in Myanmar. Well, if you've been following the situation, it's just been extremely fluid there. You now have the blame game going. The junta is basically defending its actions and, and saying that it's the protesters who are bringing the unrest to the country. Um, at the same time, they're freeing hundreds of people they've arrested because it's not a good PR move to keep uh, arresting people and holding them for no reasons. Uh, plus, they're getting a little bit overcrowded in the jail cells. Uh, at this point, it's been... Um, <sighs> 
the 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 things that we're hearing from partners in Myanmar is that they're really, really frightened about the future of the country. And as word came through that uh, the military was going to be coming in and occupying certain cities, uh, hundreds of thousands of people just left everything and fled out of the city and went for the, you know, basically headed for the hills. Um, they're trying to stay out of the way of the, the junta until things settled down. Um, at the same time, the junta has imposed martial law on several of the key cities within the country. They're occupying the schools and they're cutting off all Internet access. Now, from what we've heard, it's been kind of up and down. So occasionally people will have uh, cell phone uh, access or data access. Uh, sometimes they have Internet access. Sometimes they're able to find ways to kind of skirt around that. But the junta is starting to impose more and more sweeping kinds of shutdowns so that communication, people can't communicate with each other and they can't communicate with the outside. But now that the Myanmar people have had access to the internet, they also know there's a world that's watching. And so they're trying to find any way possible to get word out of the country and let us know what continues to happen within the country so that we can do something about it, whether or not it's um, you know, going to the United Nations or for the body of Christ there, we can be praying. We do have you know, God's ear for this kind of thing. And we can ask mm -hmm. God to intervene on behalf of the, the believers, but also the country, because nobody who lives in Myanmar loves what's happening right now. Um, and it's very unsettling to see the instability that has just completely unraveled a country since November. This has just not been very long to see this kind of thing happen and what the future holds for this country. So, you know, it, it when we say be praying alongside the body of Christ there. They need to remain courageous uh, about sharing their their hope in Jesus Christ and, and uh, their faith with other people. Um, they need to be bold continuously, but also in a situation like this, um, they need to be good citizens. And, and sometimes it's a real tricky line when it's a good citizen and when you become something else. So they need wisdom. We need to be praying alongside the body of Christ there for that kind of thing. And for ministries that are down there, that they they walk carefully too, because this is a real uh, turbulent time for the country, and it'd be very easy for the junta to look at a ministry and say, "You're causing problems. You're out of here." So they want to keep their heads down low, so they they maintain their presence in the country. So wisdom for the ministries, and let's be praying that cooler heads prevail in this situation, that wisdom comes through, and that God gets a hold of the hearts of some of these leaders, that they will see what they're doing to their country. So, um, Ruth, uh, you have shared some before here on air about your uh, experience as a woman of, uh, of Asian descent. Um, I am reading right now uh, the Asian American—let me get the title right here—Asian um, American Christian Collaborative Statement, uh, recently released, actually just yesterday— um, signed by some 600 Christian leaders across the country calling upon the church to make clear uh, and urgent its response to uh, condemning acts of hate and violence against uh, Asian and Asian American people, especially women. Um, in you know, it, the events in Atlanta brought this into very stark relief for people across the country. For those of you who are listening, um, many of the signatories uh, of this have have appeared here on this program. Jenny Yang, Vice President of the Advocacy and Policy at World Relief, Eugene Cho, CEO and President of Bread for the World, 
uh, Walter Kim, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, on and on and on. Um, and so I thought that since, you know, you were on with us on a regular basis, Ruth, and this is a part of your own personal experience, I would just ask you, in light of the rising tide of anti-Asian American uh, behavior across the country, just for you to reflect on your own experience. You know, the it, it's an uncomfortable place to be because when something happens, when an incident does occur, um, you don't you're not really sure what to do or how to address it. Was it serious enough to call in police for assistance? Um, on a couple of occasions when things have happened, um, I, I decided to share my experience in an open letter. In one specific situation, um, you know, I was working on a, a Christian campus and um, I was followed by a couple of college students out of a mall and they were throwing things at me. Um, they were shouting slurs. They were, um, it was kind of intimidating, you know, because I was trying to get to the car with my baby and they were just still lurking. I didn't know what was going to happen next. It's a very uncertain kind of a feeling. When I turned around to look at who was throwing bottle caps and who was shouting slurs, I was surprised to see that one of the young men that was uh, doing this was wearing a baseball cap with the college's logo on it. And so representing his college while he's doing this. And that's what prompted me to write an open letter to the student newspaper and basically outline the situation and just say, remind people that when you are out and about, you are an ambassador of Christ, whether or not people know it. In this case, somebody was wearing a logo and um, representing the school which puts the school in a bad light because that student is now associated with the school and that student is giving uh, a bad name to the school's reputation. Um, and I just wanted to remind people that wherever you are, you represent something and make sure you represent the right something, especially if you're going to be someone who's saying that you're a follower of Christ. Um, it is especially important to pay attention to what you allow to happen what you partake in, even if you're an innocent bystander, if you're not standing up to stop something that you're seeing, then you're part of the problem. And it was kind of surprising to see the response. Um, I got more response from women and actually faculty members than I got from anybody else. And it wasn't meant to be something where I, I was trying to get a response from people, but I wanted folks to think deeply about um, things like racism. Um, and and while it may be more over, overt with uh, other racial groups, um, Asian American people do experience very uncomfortable incidents uh, and, and continue to do so. In fact, most of my, uh, several of my cousins uh, were discussing recent incidents that have occurred uh, within the last two years uh, and, and have been uh, connected to the political things that were happening within the country. And we all have incidents like that. It makes people very uncomfortable. And for those of us who are um, living in, in this kind of a, I don't know, it, it, um, it just makes us feel perpetually foreign. 
And even though our families have been in the United States for a couple generations, we don't feel like part of the community when stuff like this happens. At the same time, this is, I think, one of the first times where the uh, the issues here have been brought up that Asian Americans also experience incidents of racism and the support and the groundswell that's coming up and the education and the awareness that's coming up on what makes us uncomfortable with certain kinds of discussions uh, and what's just simply, you know, someone asking a, a genuine question um, has brought up a really, really good discussions and things that I think are better for communication down the line. We're we're opening those kinds of doors to discuss a lot of things and uh, making headway on uh, making our communities more united a little bit better, um, making our church bodies more united a little bit better. It's so helpful. Um, thank you so much for being willing to you know share your own personal experience and a hopeful way of uh, of engaging um, on the topic. If you're listening right now and you're wondering to yourself, where can I get accurate information about what's happening and where can I get information and resources to share um, in my church and to educate myself and become empowered on this topic, AsianAmericanChristianCollaborative.com. AsianAmericanChristianCollaborative.com is the website to which I would very much like you to uh, visit today. Ruth, um, thank you as always for helping us understand what's going on in the world and right here um, at home as well. Thank you so much. Be blessed, my friend. All right, we got to take one more quick break and then we'll be right back. All right, so much uh, to cover today, and I don't want us to lose sight of uh, the joy of our salvation, the beauty of God's creation. Uh, And so my challenge today is to take note, like consciously take note at some point today of the beauty of the creation in which we live. We are stewards of it. We're responsible for it. God has set us over it as his uh, representatives. Um, we're, we are the managers of of this wonderful big blue ball. And so let's be um, aware today of, I don't know what it will be for you. It might be a bug. It might be a butterfly. It might be a rainbow. It might be uh, a shoot of green. It might be the swelling of the bud on the end of a limb. Like, I don't know what it's going to be for you. It might be a blue sky. It might be a cloud. Um, it might be a tree. It might be a person. It might be a person. We got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.